Hey, welcome to night school. It's one of those weird times where nothing's going on in the world. There's nothing happening. There's nothing in the news. You know, boredom is a luxury. Uh, if you have the ability to be bored right now, you have uh, the greatest resource of all. Because you can do a lot with boredom. That's what people don't realize when they're bored. It's like, if you are bored at any given time, it means you're not under the threat of immediate death. It means you don't have to worry about coming down from your high. You just have to recontextualize contextualize your boredom and appreciate it. And that's what meditation is, really. It's, it's recontextualizing boredom because it's the very thing that you're so afraid of doing if you have a good life or a decent life. Sitting around doing nothing. And that's what's so great about meditation is you're, you're taking that and you're, I would say, doing something with it, but you're actually not. You're doing some, you know, you're, you're deliberately doing nothing for some amount of time. And anybody who's been listening to this show the last couple of years knows I'm a, I'm a proponent of meditation. But meditation, too, there is this contradiction to it, and this isn't my own original idea, but I think it's something most people become aware of if they've meditated at all for any length of time, and it's that you're meditating so that you don't have to meditate. You're meditating almost with this this goal. I don't want to say that it's a goal, but in some weird way, you almost have this goal that you want to reach a point where you can just sustain that state of mind that you achieve through meditation, achieve. Uh, you know, you want to sustain that sensibility, whatever it is. You know, I don't think you can actually describe it using all these placeholder sounds that we call words. Uh, but, you know, you want to be able to do that without having to force yourself to sit there. And sometimes it does feel like a chore. Sometimes meditation does feel like a chore. And even though, you know, there is this idea where it's like, I want to reach a point where I don't have to deliberately do this thing every day to sustain a certain quality of mind because I know that I have access to it normally. And you do. You know, animals are in a state of meditation. Like if you see an animal, if you have a pet, when you see them just sitting there, they're not deciding to meditate. And they're not bored. They're just there. And babies do it, you know. It's something that we all have access to already. And that's, you know, another, you know, another contradiction in all that is the idea of being taught to do something that you already know how to do but forgot. And that's sort of what meditation is too. Learning how to do something you already know how to do but you forgot because you're a part of this madness called life. And meditation does feel like a chore. I love meditation. It's, it's you know, had a, a large impact on my life, obviously, but it also does feel like a chore. Sometimes I wake up and I think I don't want to do that, and sometimes I don't, but it is one of those things where it is a lot like not brushing your teeth. It's like not working out, where you're fine if you don't do it, you know, especially if, you, if you've been meditating for a while, you're you know, it's like you're not going to revert back to 
whatever it was you were, as if you were something different before you started meditating. I mean, that's a joke. But uh, it, it is one of those things where it's not like you're going to lose everything. Oh, I, I didn't meditate on, uh, you know, March, uh, March 16th, 2020, the day I didn't meditate and I lost everything I was working for. I lost everything I was working for because I didn't meditate. But you do feel that sense of guilt. There is that thing where sometimes it can feel like a chore and you can feel that sense of guilt as if you didn't do something that you should do. And I don't think you should feel that way about it because, as I was saying, you know, that you almost have this goal in meditation of reaching a point in your life, in your existence, where you can just access that doing anything. And I don't mean just that your your brain is empty, but it's just where you harmonize with the the fundamental nature of reality, you know? You want to reach that point, uh, and you don't want to feel guilty just because you don't meditate on a given day. But I, I do have to say, while I, I don't feel guilty, it is one of those things where it feels like not brushing my teeth, it feels like not working out. It feels like one of those things that well, well, here, here's something I will say, and and those are those are great examples because there are certain things in life that you just don't regret doing after you do them. There are plenty that you do regret. I've done so many fun things in my life, and I've regretted them afterward. I thought they were really exciting and fun at the time. You know, I don't need to go into examples, but it's, we all have, we all know what those things are. I mean, it could be, you know, just binge eating on, uh, you know, uh, you know, I did that a couple weeks ago. I just, there were all these, uh, like gourmet peanut butter cups, chocolate peanut butter cups. And I just kept grabbing them and eating them. And it's like in the moment for a fucking split second, they, they were real. Oh, this tastes good. You know, you get this sensory satisfaction and, you know, and then you regret it though. You regret that. And that's the case for a, a lot of pleasures in life. You do end up regretting it, and not because anybody else is making you feel feel guilty. You just know that it, it wasn't really worth it. It wasn't worthwhile. But there are some things in life that absolutely are worthwhile, and you know that because you don't regret them after you do them. There are times where I don't want to work out. I do not want to work out, but there is never a time where I finished a workout and I think, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, yeah, if you get hurt, if you push yourself too hard, you do something stupid. I mean, that, but that's not the workout. That's doing something stupid. That's lifting the weight when your wrist is injured and straining it. You know, that's what I'm, it's not about what, it's not about the greater act of working out. Uh, but you never finish a workout. I've never one time finished a workout and thought, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And the same is true for meditation. The same is true for brushing my teeth. I've woken up in the morning where I didn't brush my teeth, you know, the night before and thought, why didn't I take the two minutes to brush my teeth? You know, why and, and why didn't I? You know, but I, I can feel it. I sure don't like that feeling. And uh, so there are certain actions you can take in life, and you know them because you feel a certain way. And meditation is another one that there are times where I really don't want to sit down for 20 minutes and meditate. 
but I do it, and then afterwards I never think, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Man, that was fucked up. That was fucked up, man. You know, I, I never think that way. I never feel that way about meditation. But that doesn't mean that you have to do it. It's just that you. I do have that feeling when I don't do it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, you know, and, and you have to trust the way you feel in those situations. And I really think that you can live your life in a way that benefits you if you keep that in mind. Because you hear this idea of no regrets. It's one of those cliches, no regrets. And people only say that when they have either done or they are about to do something stupid. You know, they only say that when they're about to do something that they will regret. No regrets is this way of trying to preempt the feeling of regret because they know that they're going to have that feeling. Whereas no regrets is something you should say after you do something because there's no, there's no real escaping the feeling of regret. It's not one of those feelings you can easily control except by doing things that you know you won't regret. And I'm the kind of person where like I'm rebellious, maybe even oppositionally defiant. I don't think I'm, I'm diagnosably oppositionally defiant. That's a great poem oppositionally, I don't even, I'm not even going to say it again, too hard, it's too hard to say, um, but uh, it is one of those things where, you know, there are certain things, and, and everybody tells you the same thing, it's not just me being like, oh, I never regret a workout afterward, everybody who works out will agree, you'll never come across somebody who works out who says, I will, I regret that, and you yeah, you could probably find an example you could probably find an example of somebody who says they regret it. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe there isn't a single person who feels that way after they work out. I'd be surprised. Because even somebody who just started working out and it's really difficult, they're really sore, they're really sweaty, they feel uncomfortable, they're not used to it, uh, they're, they're out of shape, so it was really a strain on their life. It was a disruption. It... it you know, it, it created this contrast in their normal sedentary life that was just disruptive to them. Even then, those people will feel good afterward. And they might not do it again because they're going to be really sore for 10 days. And they might be like, oh, I worked out once. I don't need to do it again. Because when you don't work out regularly, you do have that sort of feeling sometimes where it's like, what do you, you mean? I have to keep doing this? You mean I have to keep doing this? You know, yeah. That's the thing about it. You do have to keep doing it, even when you don't want to. But but especially when you don't want to, you feel even better. You regret it even less when you don't want to and you do it. Uh, but anyway, you know, I want to go back to that idea of meditation and the idea of meditating so that you, in the bigger picture, don't have to meditate. And there may never be a... I mean, you know, I've only been meditating, like, what, two years now. I'm two years into meditation. I'm an expert. I'm practically a monk. I'm going to tell you how to meditate because I've been doing it for two years. And we, we all do that a lot. You know, you start doing something, you're really excited. And, you know, really early on, you become an expert. You know, I know all about it. But really, I think meditation is a great example where there's no, yeah, there's monks who do it 12 hours a day. But there's no real 
it's something that that if you're if you're going into meditation thinking of it as like I'm a high level meditator or you know I'm a you know what I mean like like if if your ego is attached to how long you've been meditating whether it's you know the duration of each meditation session or whether it's like how many years you've been doing it obviously some people are more qualified to to talk about that than other people you know you can't escape qualification in human life, in everything we do. But at the same time, it's something that, uh, you know, you can't truly assign those things to something like meditation. But, you know, obviously I haven't been doing this a a long time, two years, but I still feel like I can talk about my experience with it. Uh, And there is that sense, though, and I've had it since the beginning, where it's like I'm doing this almost with this, you know, wider goal of, of not having to do this. And you think that that sounds like a contradiction. But you're more than capable of keeping two even opposing ideas in your head at the same time. And this is something that I bring up all the time. Uh, you know, I talk about it with friends. And we have this idea that, you know, if, if you hold two opposing views, you're a hypocrite or it's contradictory. And the human brain is so incredible because it's completely capable of holding two opposing views at the same time. And it can reconcile those and create a third thing that actually harmonizes those two allegedly opposite ideas. You can create something that isn't necessarily a compromise, but actually removes that cognitive dissonance that you have and creates this third thing that makes sense. Because what is making sense? It's harmonizing. When something makes sense, it means that you've harmonized with that idea. Harmonized. Uh, (laughs) uh, But uh, it's an interesting thing that our brains are able to do, but we are constantly telling ourselves, don't be a hypocrite. Oh, you said that yesterday? Your opinions change from day to day and, and not permanently. You could wake up today, and based on how you feel or what you come into contact with, you could have a different opinion of something that you had an, a, a certain opinion, opinion of yesterday, and it, and it could go back to that opinion two days later. You know, your brain is capable of doing that, and you shouldn't feel like a hypocrite. And the same is true for having opposing ideas. And if you're familiar at all with, you know, uh, you know Zen Buddhism, it's a lot of the the teachings of Zen Buddhism are based around these contradictory riddles. And I think there's a reason why, you know, the Western mainstream, I mean, there's tons of people who are Zen Buddhists or would call themselves that, and I wouldn't call myself that. You know, I'm not even a Buddhist. But, uh, you know, Zen Buddhism is something that was very attractive to me when I took an interest in, in Buddhism and studying those ideas. Because it was something that I naturally felt. My entire life, I've naturally pulled opposing views into my brain and without even trying to reconcile them, just let them be there. And not like, and when I say pulling them in, I just mean they were kind of already there anyway. My brain naturally kind of will hold opposing views, you know? Uh, And Zen Buddhism, though, was really attractive to me because it's kind of based around that. It's based around, you know, a lot of the teachings are these riddles. 
they are these things where it's like, oh, well, here's this thing and here's that thing. Try to make sense of it. And the answer to the riddle is, oh, I don't have to make sense of it. Those, uh, those are things that I feel or things that I experience. And it, the same is true for identities. Because our, our identities are formed very much around this idea of, oh, I can't be a contradiction. I can't be a hypocrite. If I'm this thing, I can't be that thing. If I have a, you know, a liberal view, I can't, I can't have a conservative view. If I got a liberal view, I can't also have this other view. And I can't wake up, uh, you know, I can't wake up tomorrow and have this view and then wake up the next day and have this supposedly opposite view. I can't do that and be who I think I am. But the reason that's so attractive uh, to someone like me and the reason why so many Zen teachings are that way is because they do challenge your identity. They do even wreck your identity. They wreck your sense of self, and you realize what your sense of self is based on. So that's what's so interesting about those ideas to me, uh, is that you are more than capable of having these opposing views and giving meaning to each of them without taking away from the other one, and also seeing how meaningless those views are, because I think that's an important part too, and that itself is a contradiction, being like, okay, my brain has these two things that seem like they are in opposition to each other, and they're both meaningful to me, which is why they're both a part of my thought process. And if they're meaningful how could they also be meaningless? Because it's through that meaningless that you realize, you know, it's through that meaninglessness that you realize that they don't make you who you are, and they don't make you a hypocrite. And so much of what we call hypocrisy is actually a myth. And if you stopped for a second, you'd realize that. If you, if you stopped the things you're doing you would realize that a lot of that hypocrisy is actually a myth that has been perpetuated by people for whatever reason. Some people have agendas behind it. You have to agree, you know, oh, you can't have those two views because you, you need to vote blue. You need, oh, you can't think that way and this, this way at the same time. Otherwise, you can't vote blue. You can't vote blue if you think that way. And uh, and it's one of the, you know and it's no surprise that politics is one of the places where you you hear hypocrisy. People are screaming, "Oh, he's a hypocrite! He said this, did this. He's a flip flopper." You know, it's it's no surprise that politics is where you hear that accusation maybe the most. And and just to go back to what I said, you know, in it's when you stop that you realize, oh, it's not. You know, hypocrisy is largely a myth, and my brain is more than capable of not only holding to, uh, holding, all my H's today, um, not only am I capable of holding those opposing views, but I'm capable of letting them go, too. And it's through that process of letting them go that I'm able to hold on to them. And then we're back to another riddle. We're back to another one of those sort of Zen-type riddles. Uh, but it's all very interesting to me. Uh, and, you know, and life just took its natural course, you know, to lead me here, for sure. Um, but uh, getting into that idea of, you know, reconciling opposing views, too. 
And people are afraid of compromise. For as much as people are afraid of hypocrisy, they're afraid of compromise, even though it's through compromise that you destroy hypocrisy. Because a compromise basically cuts out the things that are mutually exclusive. You know, compromise harmonizes the things that do make sense together. And instead of seeing that as some hybridization of things that don't belong together, Romeo and Juliet, they're from different clans. They can't possibly be together. But if they have a baby, you know, that baby is from both bloodlines. You know what I mean? That's, it's the same thing with ideas. You know, that baby is a compromise between the whatever the fuck those families are called. Capul- Capulet, Montague... I never, I never dreamed that I would be making a Romeo and Juliet reference. I never dreamed it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing for ideas. It's the same thing for views. It's, it's the same thing for how we view reality. It's the same thing for how we view ourselves. And so compromise is a way of reconciling contradiction. It's reconciling uh, hypocrisy and seeing that, oh... These things might be up against each other, but they have qualities in common. There are parallels between these things. And because there are parallels, they can come together. Maybe not everything that makes those separate ideas what they are, but some of those things. And so there is this process of reconciliation and compromise. And you don't have to do that, though. You don't have to compromise. You can also just keep two opposing ideas without needing to do anything with them. And they can come and go. You know, you don't have to do anything, really. Um, but And some people, you know, the reason why I think these ideas are maybe less popular in the West and, and the reason why Eastern spirituality filters into the West is more of like a follow your bliss. Meditate so that you can feel joy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I would never tell someone that, like, oh, you're going to sit there with the goal of feeling joy, and it might actually help you feel joy. Oh, how dare you have a goal of feeling good? You know, I'm not coming from that place at all. Uh, but for me, that that just was never attractive to me. You know, that follow your bliss sort of idea was never something that attracted me. And maybe it's because I, you know... I'm too much of a curmudgeon. Maybe it's because it just seemed, uh, you know, it, it's kind of an aesthetic thing. It's kind of the appearance of it, where if I don't like the way something looks and sounds, I'm going to, you know, turn my head the other way. And I've had to deal with that. I've had to reconcile that. I've had to compromise with that where it's like there are certain ideas where the way they're presented is extremely unattractive to me. Like if you see a, a quote, a motivational quote, just the way that it's presented. Like if you go online and you see the way motivational quotes are, are written, like the font they use or, or the image that is accompanying them, I see that and I you know run the other way. But I've had to compromise with that. I've had to accept the fact that those can be meaningful. Clichés can be powerful. And I might not like the way they're presented. I might not like who is saying them. But I can still 
reconcile those ideas with my reality and accept their value. But, uh, yeah, it is one of those things where I understand why people in the West are, you know, and I don't mean to, like, who am I? I'm a, I'm a Western man, a proud Western man. I am. You know, I'm a proud West, I'm a proud Western man. But it's true, and at the same time, though, it's like the idea that has been most attractive to me is one that forces you to contend with riddles, because my brain naturally does that. So finding these, you know, long-standing, you know, even ancient ideas that deal with those sorts of riddles that my brain naturally uses to interpret reality with was awesome. It's awesome to have those. It's awesome to know there is a tradition that, that, uh, there's a tradition with a foundation in those sorts of riddles, reconciling and not reconciling these con these so-called contradictions. It's nice to know that I'm not the only person that does that, but I understand why it's not attractive to people. I understand why someone who has decided they want to feel better in the United States doesn't just want to sit around like dealing with with opposites. You know, I understand why they don't want to just play that that game and it's another game, of course. It is a game, because you don't know what you're going to get out of a game like that, too. And it's much easier to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to meditate because I love that blissful feeling I get when I breathe a certain way and I clear my mind. It makes me feel happy. My goal is happiness. And for me, that's not why I meditate, but when I do feel happy, I accept that, too. It's sort of, I'll take what whatever comes, I think that's what ends up happening is you you end up taking that approach of I'll take whatever comes in that given moment. And that's why you want to get to a point where you no longer have to meditate to get the benefits or to, to not the benefits, but you no longer want to have to meditate to exist in that state of mind that you access through meditation. Uh, it's, it's all interesting stuff. And, you know, with people... Uh, being inside, here I am talking about world events, talking about the thing everybody's talking about, uh, but still, like, people have an opportunity right now to deal with some of these things, and I'm thankful that I can enter this this current uh, phase of the world, This I, I can enter this having done some of these things, and having had to deal with, and I don't say this patting myself on the back by any means, I just, I truly feel fortunate that I started some kind of process a while ago that I can bring into this. And I had the exact same feeling when my mom passed away, where I thought, you know, thank God that I started this practice before this, and that this didn't hit me at a time where I was totally mentally and spiritually unprepared. And and you can't be overconfident. You can't, oh, I... I, I sure was mentally and spiritually prepared. You know, I don't feel that way either. Uh, but I think you can, I think the 
the humblest way you can put it is, thank God I started that practice. Thank God I had taken some initiative. I mean, you can give yourself some credit. Thank God I took some initiative to start some kind of practice before this, and I don't know what will happen. I'm not going to say that this is going to make everything easy. I'm not, I'm not going to say that everything is going to be great because I had already initiated some kind of process that is designed to deal with these kinds of things. And that's where we go back to, you know, when some of these ideas were first written down, when people first started saying, hey, there's something to this, and maybe we can teach this, we can practice this. You know, these things happened in difficult times. Like most people who have had some sort of epiphany or transformation, it generally comes after something extremely difficult, a very dark time in their life. You hear the, the phrase all the time, and it's probably just the things that I pay attention to, but, you know, dark night of the soul is what everyone talks about. And it, it's a very true phenomenon where uh, you experience a dark time, and that's what leads you to some sort of transformation, be it spiritual, whatever you want to call it. These are placeholder words but the sensations, the feelings are there. And uh, it's often something very difficult that leads you there. And people do have an opportunity right now. There are people who are right this second worried about being homeless. There are people who are worried in six months they might be homeless. You know, we all have different... Our concerns have different levels of immediacy, but I think that everybody can benefit not from, I'm not saying, oh, you just need to meditate. <laughs> you guys are all stressed out. You just need to meditate. You know, I'm not, I'm not coming from that place. It's the worst voice that I think I do. And I do it very rarely. That's by far the worst voice. One of them. One of them. But uh, it's one of those things where it's, it's not that at all. Um, because these situations also make you realize that meditation itself isn't that important. You know, it's not like meditation is going to save you, but I think just phrasing it as a general practice, because there's no one way to do something. And that's where, you know, even though these traditions have existed and these traditions came from somebody who experienced something difficult and found a way of dealing with it. Uh, and, and there's a people have had a lot of different ways. People have found a lot of different ways to do that. And that's why we do have so many different, even within, you know, even within one idea, you know, that fractures into 20. You know what I mean? It's a reason why we have different schools. It's a reason why we have different um, religions, I mean, on, on a larger level. But within each religion, we have these sub-sects that, that each have their own way of dealing with it. And... You know, it's through difficult times that these ideas become relevant. Because we have a tendency to think that these things are, are attached to luxury. And I think they are in some ways. In the same way that boredom is a privilege, as I said earlier, in the same way that boredom is a luxury, you know, being able to meditate is a luxury. Because, yeah, you can reach a point in meditation. I mean, I was meditating a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, the dog was barking in my ear, and it felt great. It, it was able to... 
harmonize with what I was doing. It didn't disrupt me. Yet when I first started meditating a couple years ago, you know, Rosie was still alive, my cat, and I remember her getting in my face and meowing, and, and I was getting mad. I was like, how, how dare she? How dare my beloved elderly little cat who means the world to me meow at me while I'm trying to do nothing quietly? You know, it was that sort of thing. And I felt really stupid, too, because I knew how stupid it was that I was getting mad when I was trying to do the very thing. <laughs> you know, when I was trying to do the very thing that... I mean, I don't need to, see, to, to explain why getting mad while you're meditating is silly. I mean, it would make you... It's not silly, but why it would make you feel, feel silly. Feel silly. Feel silly. It made me feel silly. Um, I don't need to explain that. Uh, I think everybody understands that. Why the thing you're doing to escape those feelings is making you feel those feelings. And I think that's something a lot of people have early on in meditation. And I, the best way I've heard that explained is that it's not that you're feeling more that way in meditation. It's that there's less distraction and there are fewer barriers, so you're actually experiencing the things that you already experience, and maybe less of them, but you're experiencing them more directly because it's just you and your brain. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just see where these things are a luxury, and being able to sit there quietly for 20 minutes without disruption. I mean, if you're, if you live in the ghetto and you have a household full of people and, and you know, there's, they're all doing things and you all share a room, being able to sit in that room and access a certain state of mind without any prior training, it's going to be extremely difficult. You'd be able to do that if you've been doing it for a long time, but it's going to be extremely difficult for most people. So there is this luxury to be able to sit there and do nothing in the same way that there is this luxury of, of boredom. Boredom itself is a form of luxury because you don't have something pressing. You don't have something on your shoulders in that moment if you feel bored. Not if you feel if you feel truly bored, you are not worried about living or dying in that moment because you just want to taste something. You just want to see something. You just want things to be moving on a screen in a way that interests you. You know, and uh, that, that's just the funny thing about boredom is it's like, oh no, I, I want this one thing. I, I, I'm watching this thing that has things moving and making noises on a screen, but I'm bored by it. I want something else that is moving on this screen and making noises that captivates my interest. That sounds like a luxury. That sounds like a privilege. And uh, it's not something to feel guilty of. If you feel bored, you shouldn't feel guilty. That's the worst thing you could do. Uh, but... If you do feel bored, you could see that as an opportunity. Like, I don't, I'm not worried about living or dying in this exact moment. Maybe 10 minutes later, you will be. Maybe 10 minutes earlier, you, you were. But in that exact moment that you are feeling boredom, you have a great opportunity because nobody's chasing you with a knife. Somebody who's getting chased around a room by, by a knife-wielding maniac is not bored. You know, someone who is... 
and I mean, the same is true for the guy running around with the knife. Neither of those people are bored in that moment. The situation sucks. <laughs> you know, the situation sucks, but neither of those people are bored. So to that person who's getting chased around by a knife-wielding maniac, the second they can sit down and say, gee, I sure wish something interesting presented itself to me and I didn't feel bored, you know, the second they can do that, wow, that's wonderful. You know, and I think that on a societal level, that's what's going to happen in all this, where there's a lot of people stuck at home, there's a lot of people not able to do the things they normally do, but a lot of it's also in their head. Because a lot of them are already, we're already very isolated. I mean, this whole idea of social isolation, social distancing, you know, I don't need to make the same joke everybody's making that so many people have already been doing this. But the frame of mind is different because you're being told you can't go out. Instead of just being depressed and like not wanting to see people because you want to play video games and like watch Netflix, uh, you're being told that you have to stay home and play video games and watch Netflix. And, you know, we all know how we feel about being told to do something. And let's go back to fitness. Let's go back to working out. You know, I hated ex exercise and working out when I was in gym class because someone was telling me I had to do it. Someone was telling me I had to go you know, spend an hour in school where I already didn't want to be, and I had to get sweaty and change my clothes uh, you know, I didn't want to do that. And it's different from doing it on your own, taking the initiative. Whereas when I work out now, it's like it's because I'm the one who wants to do it. And when you're the one who wants to do it, uh, it, it becomes desirable. It's a product of your own desire. So it's like right now people are dealing with this thing where they're going to be really bored. They're going to exhaust their the things they watch. You know, but they're going to have to get creative. It's an opportunity in that way, too. They're going to, and I don't mean the whole like, oh, people are going to make a bunch of good art because they're stuck inside, you know, which is a nice thought, but it's not where my brain is at. Like, as a person who, as an artist, you know, at this point in my life, I just say it. I used to like pull, play this game where I was like, I don't call myself an artist, even though like I create art all the time because I don't want to be defined by that identity, blah, blah, blah. And I don't like, I don't like the way that the term artist is often used and what it's associated with. It's, it's a lot easier just to say I'm an artist, I learned. You know, it's like, it's a lot fucking easier just to be like, oh yeah, I'm an artist. And that can mean anything you want it to mean. But the point is, is that I do creative things that people would call art. But I don't feel the desire to do that right now. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm lucky in a sense, too, because I've already been through something very difficult. I've been through the death of my mother. My wonderful mother died a few months ago. And I don't have to worry about her right now. And... I, I got to deal with something that changed my life forever. And the, the way that I was thinking and the life I was living and the general practice of, of my life prior to that prepared me for that experience and prepared me to see that as an opportunity within the so-called tragedy and... I feel lucky in that sense that I can now enter this situation, and no matter what happens, through all the, the fear and uncertainty, which I certainly have, 
which I certainly have surrounding the current global situation. But I'm able to take that and say, well, hey, I went through this thing a few months ago, and I don't even have to say that to myself. I can just take that with me. And this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back again. It sounds like this is some sort of ego. And of course, there's a little bit of that in here. But the reality is I'm just, I'm grateful that I can enter this having been through certain things in recent times that were very difficult and still were. It's not like the experience of losing my mother just suddenly was, it just suddenly stopped when global pestilence took root, you know? Uh, it's not like that suddenly stopped. That, that just blends into this situation. But, you know, I, I was able to deal with that situation very well, in part because this it, I was already doing something that had prepared me for that situation, and I'm already doing something that prepares me for this situation. And it may not be, I may not be prepared on a practical level. I don't think I am. On a functional, practical level in terms of, you know, uh, economic stability, things like that, I'm not prepared for this. And that's why I'm scared. But there are certain practices that I've been doing for a number of years that have prepared me for this. And I am grateful for that. I am truly grateful. And without preaching, without trying to tell anybody what they should do, I highly recommend people start thinking that way. If you're going to be bored, think, what can you do with that boredom? And I don't mean like, oh, what can I uh, watch? Or even what, what creative thing can I make? Although, please do that if that's what you feel like doing. What can you do within your own brain to harmonize? What can you do within your own brain to reconcile the situation you're in with the situation you want to be in. And there are limitations on you for sure. We always have limitations. I mean, I'm in a freaking body. If I had things my own way, if I had things my own way, I wouldn't even be in a body. I'd just be a floating, a floating ball of light. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. <laughs> uh, so it's like we all have our limitations, but at the same time, it's like you can work with those. You can reconcile where you are with where you want to be, and you may not become that thing that you want to be. You may not live in that way that you ultimately want to live, but it goes back to the idea of you know, setting your sights on something. And it's that most distant shore that I've referenced on here, and that's a Buddhist idea as well. You focus on that most distant shore, and it doesn't mean that you're going to get to that most, most distant shore, but the things that you're going to reach by setting your sights on that most distant shore are going to be somewhere you want to be too. <laughs> This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains 
Children can run free. 